Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 281. And I'm back in New York City, back from 30 plus days in Europe where I had an amazing time. But I'm here for a couple of weeks and then I head to West Virginia and then it's back to the grind. It's back to work. This episode was recorded in Jersey City. That's just over the state line, right through New York City, through the Holland Tunnel, and you're there. And my guest is Carlos P. Beltran. He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, producer, and journalist, and he is from Caracas, Venezuela. Now, right now, a lot of his work is centered around climate change and climate justice, but he's done work over the years that deal with civil rights, migration, LGBTQ issues, and he has worked for himself as a freelance artist, but also for NBC, National Geographic, Discovery Network. I was really excited to talk to him because I can't recall ever having represented Venezuela. And though he's based here now, and his work is covering a variety of countries and a variety of issues, a lot of his early work centered around stories and people from Venezuela. Now, most of what you hear in the news today in the past three, four years is centered around a lot of craziness in Venezuela uh, with the contested election and then all of the protests that have happened after that and you hear about a lot of inequality. And that kind of forms the, the backdrop for a lot of his stories. But what I love about them is they focus on really fascinating people uh, doing the best that they can in a situation that's quite tough. And I think he does so objectively and fairly. And he really does an amazing job of telling their stories. Sometimes they're humorous. Sometimes they're heartbreaking. So I was really excited to get to meet him, and I'm fortunate that I was able to meet him at his home and to meet his crazy dog and have a coffee and get to just talk to him about his work and his life and some of the really amazing stories that he's covered. So if you go to the description for this video, uh, for this podcast, in whatever player you're listening to this in, I will have a link to his website. Most of his videos are there for free to watch. You know, I did a deep dive where I spent a couple of hours in the nice air-conditioned room, uh, scanning through all his work. And I would recommend doing the same. It's really fascinating stuff. I'll also have a link to his Instagram account, social media, and all that stuff. There will also be a link to my Instagram account and a link to my Patreon account. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers, postcards from around the world. The next set will be coming from <laughs> West Virginia, not too far away in the world, but uh, yeah, cool stuff like that. But if you can't help out that way, just word of mouth does a lot for, for getting the, uh, the views and the downloads up. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Carlos P. Beltran. Cool, cool. Uh, so maybe just like give a little context. Um, you are originally from Caracas? Yes, correct. Can you tell me just sort of like generally about life for you growing up in Caracas? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born uh, in the late 80s. I uh, feel older every passing day. Yeah. But um, back then, um, I think Caracas, Venezuela as a whole, was a bit different than it is today. Certainly portrayed much different in the news as it's been portrayed for the past 20 years. 
you know, with with political turmoil, uh, the different opinions on socialism, communism, and other political ideologies coming out of there. So um, my childhood was just to keep track and focus was uh, very uh, let's just say uneventful. Mm-hmm. Very nice middle class, you know, childhood. I, I, I remember growing up. In my neighborhood, my neighbors were from Japan and Spain. It was, and I, I, I didn't really, I didn't really register it because it was just normal for me to be surrounded by very diverse, you know, people and communities. Something that, unfortunately, for the past twenty years, has drastically changed. Mm. Um, and I still go back to Venezuela every now and then just to, you know, either see some remaining family that I have there, or uh, sometimes for work. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's changed a bit. Mm. Business has changed since back then and uh, it's a different thing. But anyways, you'll see that I digress a lot. I just moved to the present instead of just keeping the past. But yeah, um, mother, a father, uh, siblings, you know, growing up, we were lucky to live very close to a beach, about 30 minute, 35 minute drive. Uh, so that, w- that happened every weekend. Mm. So I Honestly, it's just, it seems like a reality difficult to grasp nowadays when you have very basic knowledge of Caracas. You just think of, you know, the shanty towns and the inflation and, you know, yeah, um, different reality for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen even um, just like really beautiful uh, national parks of which there's yeah. many in Venezuela. Absolutely. Um, and then unfortunately I've also seen like, yeah, the government's not doing a lot of upkeep and regulation with the parks to make sure that they're uh, in sort of natural order, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of heartbreaking. But mm-hmm. um, was there something in early life that like set you down the path of storytelling or film? Or, like, Did you have a major influence? Yeah, thank you. So I, I should say that my family is a family of engineers oh. uh, or doctors or economists. I mean, very, very scientific folks. I was, as cliche as it sounds, the um, black sheep of the family. I don't know anybody in my family that's on the creative realm. Mm. Um, so I just remember my father giving me a tiny film uh, Canon camera uh, when I was very young, probably eight or nine years old. And I would just take it with me everywhere. Um, it seems to be a very consistent trait for people who are very visual, you know, and very creative. Just this ability to record things, whether mm. in writing or in my case with a camera. Um, so, yeah, I used to do it and we would show either those photographs or uh, why well, I started with like uh, tape recorders. We would show those movies to my family and friends and they would love them. And I just loved the reactions. I just loved being able to capture things. At that time, I wasn't really thinking about storytelling, of course, mm-hmm. as uh, you know, in my, when I was 10, 12, my early teens. Um, but I, I, I believe that th- that was the beginning of me thinking, you know, or being, you know, attached, inherently attached to visuals mm-hmm. and visual arts. So, yeah. <laughs> did, did you have a story that, sort of broke for you? I mean, there, there's so many people in the world of freelance that mm-hmm. kind of stay in the world of freelance forever mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. a very competitive field. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there like a singular story for you that sort of put you on the map in this world? Uh, yeah. So look, um, I should say that I began, I went to journalism school, oddly enough, in Kansas, and we can get to that in a bit. Oh, but yeah. um cool. But I, when I moved back after college to Venezuela, I actually was working in advertising 
and I was working, I was directing commercials or editing commercials, or I even worked on a 10 part uh, web series with now a famous actor, actress. Um, she uh, acts in the, in the Mayans, if you're into FX, the Mayans okay, or yeah. Sons of Anarchy. Her name is Carla Barata. So I gave her her first acting job. So that's what I was doing uh, by 2010, 2012, mm. you know. Um, but being able to tell a story with a camera, a microphone, and basic editing skills, basically anything that was happening, nonfiction in front of me, was always very, um, very attractive, uh, very appealing. Yeah, I... Look, I, I was born and raised in Venezuela, and I just happened to be at the wrong place at the right time, in a way, because when the riots, every, every time that there would be political turmoil, uh, you know, you, I, I felt the need to be able to tell those stories, not only for the people in Venezuela, um, but also internationally. So yes, in, 2013, in 2014, I believe there were, there were some big riots, violent ones over there. And I believe those were the first stories that I ever uh, produced for international networks. I believe um, Fusion TV back then owned by ABC News. I did stories for them. Um, trying to remember, I've, I've done quite a bit. I mean, in Venezuela, I produce, I don't know if you want me to go into this, but that led me to produce stories for the New York Post, AJ+, mm. Plus, New York Times. I mean, like I produce for a bunch of networks over there. But to, re to answer your question though, yes, back in 2011, being in Venezuela after school, getting sick of working in advertising and on narrative stuff, I actually grabbed my camera and followed this guy this young kid who was a fantastic award-winning drummer, but he had a condition, a physical condition, that barely allowed him to move his limbs. So he needed someone to tie his shoes, come his hair, dress him, bathe him, uh, but he played the drums with a national orchestra over there. So I thought, this is a fantastic character. I'm gonna follow him. And that ended up being a 14-minute documentary that went on to film festivals in the U.S., Venezuela, and that kind of propelled me as, you know, this person who back in, you know, 2010 or so was focusing in Venezuela on those kind of stories, which, you know, then, yeah, eventually led me to produce more documentaries and more nonfiction work. Is that documentary still available? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, um, I'll, 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 I don't know if you post links or not to your, to your, to your yeah, site yeah, of or course. not, but I'll, I'll, but I'll send it up. Yeah. I believe it's on my Vimeo page and there's a couple of other pages that I've shared Latin work. Um, but yeah, you can watch it for free. Of course. Yeah. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try not to look at my notes and sure. talk about some of the videos and some of the characters that you have or characters or some of the interesting people that you've mm -hmm. covered in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. But before that, and this might be a bit loaded, but it's it, sometimes it's really hard to get an accurate depiction of what's happening somewhere, uh, mm. especially with how divided we are in this country and how mm. divided we are with media and storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, I teach history, and I at the at the end of the I teach it's basically twentieth century, and it's called like conflict in the twentieth century, wow. of which there are many, uh, and it basically ends with the very long period of the Cold War. And the United States, through the CIA, has not always done, <laughs> to put it lightly, great things in, in Latin America, mm -hmm. um, especially during that time period. And so, more recently, there was a contested election in Venezuela, and there are riots, some of which I think that you were just referring to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at who supports one candidate and who supports the other in an international sense, mm-hmm. it looks like Cold War politics, of which we're seeing now with many issues around the world, with Ukraine, with Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, where the U.S. and a lot of Western Europe uh, – was in support of Guaidado, and then you'll see like Russia, uh, China, I think Iran and Turkey in support of Maduro. Do you have any sense of just sort of like uh, almost like populist policy or like maybe a better way to say it is like sort of what the majority on the ground in Venezuela, which way they're leaning or... What exactly is happening? <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm, I'm always very open with my political stands okay. as a person and as a journalist on what's been happening in Venezuela. I'm no politician. I'm no historian. I was someone, once again, who was born and raised there and who experienced very much firsthand mm. um, and not only, of course, through my own experience, but through my family's experience, uh, what happened in Venezuela, what's been happening over there for the past 20 years. So when you talk to a Venezuela about what's happening there, of course, as an American, I can understand what you'd be asking in terms of, okay, the international uh, effect, international um, a position on what's happening you know, in Venezuela, who supports who type of thing. When you're in Venezuela, it's like a microcosmos, you know, mm. and everything really focuses on... Uh, personal experiences over there, you know? Yeah, um, more, the stereotype is that you'll have someone who's from middle class or upper class in Venezuela, which they're both almost erased. There's not such a thing, mm-hmm. uh, at least not, not as prevalently as there was, uh, you know, some 30 years ago. It's, the stereotype is to say that they are, uh, you know, against Maduro or against Chavez, who came into power in 1999, and they're all pro, you know, United States type mm-hmm. of thing, right? Uh, and it gets very tricky and very interesting when you talk about Venezuelans who live in Miami, for example, or in Florida, who are mm. very Republican. And that's another stereotype, right? Um, but at the end of the day, it's very hard for me to accurately say what, the mo- what most of the country wants. Okay. Uh, especially because, once again, yeah, there have been highly contested elections over there. At some point, we still have two presidents, a bunch of countries... Um, uh, acknowledged uh, Juan Guaido, the young, you know, Venezuelan um, politician to be the president or representing Venezuela, and the many other countries uh, uh, acknowledge Maduro, which it's nightmare when it comes to, you know, international politics. We don't have a working uh, U.S. embassy here in, in New York. Really? In fact, nowhere in the U.S., so if I wanted to, for example, and I'm deviating a bit, but if I wanted to renew my Venezuelan passport, that's a nightmare to do. Uh, I would have to go to Canada or maybe Mexico to do so. Wow. So, again, I'm jumping back and forth. Uh, I guess I cannot give you a short answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know what most of the country is, but I would say if you want to know, such a twilight zone type of place, that if you want to know what Venezuelans feel, you just watch the videos, visit the mm. country if you can. Um, first off, if you're a journalist and you want to go to Venezuela, chances are that you will never get a journalist visa over there uh, to go over there, which you need to be able to work uh, over there. So it's, it's, it's tough. My personal stance is I've, I've been against uh, most of the so-called policies ever since Chavez came in. Okay. It's not hard to see the effect that's had on the country where there's no more middle class. If he wanted to, and this might sound radical to people who are not, you know, knowledgeable of 
what socialist, if not, you know, not communist, socialist uh, policies have been put in place. They, they wanted to level the classes over there and they leveled them, but statistically to the ground where there's hyperinflation now so bad that literally you have to buy anything, a hot dog with dollars, like, like literally dollar bills over there. Like local currency is so devaluated that most probably people don't take it. You go to the grocery store, they won't take a local currency, which it's insane to me, you know? So. It's confusing again for, for someone like me who's a layman uh, with, you know, having a strong understanding of what's happening. Uh, because again, like Venezuela has one of the largest oil reserves mm. in the world. Mm. And especially now where you see Europe is going to be struggling with energy, mm. uh, it would seem like a prime opportunity to mm. export some of that. I just... I, I don't know. Um, right. Well, and, and again, I haven't followed. What I know is that oil has been given away for cheap for years in yeah. Venezuela. It's it's basically keeping perhaps the country afloat, but you don't see that reflected on mm. you know government-run hospitals, buildings, parks. Uh, you don't, right? Uh, and crime has always been uh, a, a huge factor over there. So yeah, we just we don't see it. If you if you really thought about the amount of oil that Venezuela has compared to say Dubai, for example, Venezuela should be a power mm. right now, like it was back in the 60s and 70s. The oil boom in Venezuela was in the 70s. That was the golden age. You talk about Caracas, like you know, a city very much compared to New York and London, you know, the height of cosmopolitan living and, you know, diversity in business, that's gone, right? That's gone. Um, and I think it's just per largely because of mismanagement of that, you know, richness of, mm. of oil, which by the way, then, you know, it begs that you can, be, you can talk about whether or not oil will be a thing in the next 10, 20 years, right. and, you know, whatever, but um, and then I don't know what Venezuela would do. You, we certainly don't export anything else, uh, and tourism is not even a thing anymore over there either. So, yeah. Sorry, that's my dog. That's okay. <laughs> hey, uh, well, one thing that I really loved about your stories from Venezuela is like that backdrop is always there, but it's not the folk. Come on up here. Come here. Come here. But it's not the focal point of the stories. The focal mm. point of the stories mm -hmm. is the people. Sure. And I want to get into some of those because there's a commonality that runs through all of the stories and that's mm -hmm. like just people trying to survive and, and yeah. get by in different ways. Mm -hmm. The first one I watched was you went and you talked with somebody who's a drug dealer, more almost like, like a wholesaler. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and what I was really struck by initially was that he's speaking in full view of the camera. His face isn't yeah. blurred. There's no like voice modulator. Right. How are you able to set that up mm -hmm. and make him comfortable enough to do that. Right. So every every time that you talk as a journalist, especially one who's like me, who has a camera on you, is different. If you show up with a pen and pencil, it's much different than when you show up with a you know with a camera and a microphone. Um, that particular case, it was all about my access and the contacts. I had spent so many years in Venezuela doing stories about the you know, border conflict, uh, political turmoil, the economy, and drug trafficking, that it was, uh, I think, my driver or my moto taxi driver, the person who you know, took me from point A to B in Venezuela, in Caracas, because traffic is so bad, he told me, hey, I have a friend of a friend who, you know, does that. So if, if you ever wanted to do a story on it, you know, he's very nonchalant. Because my driver knew of the kind of stories that I was looking. 
And then I met, first it was just a first approach. I met with them, you know, with, with the person that you're talking about, the drug dealer, the cocaine trafficker. Um, and I just said, I was honest. I mean, like, look, I, I, this is what I intend to do. I just want to hear about you, your life, uh, uh, whether you have a day job and this is what you do on the side, like what, just kind of a profile on this particular person. And he felt so confident mm. that he was untouchable, like perhaps because he had bought the police, you know, nearby because, you know, I don't know, there were not going to be any repercussions that he was very open, you know? And I remember that only thing that I took with me was a bottle of vodka or gin, <laughs> I, I think that day. And, you know, they were like, you know, yeah, sure, come in, you know, and I explained what I was going to do. And they started just drinking some, you know, gin or vodka with cheap juice. And then we just, and this sounds odd, bonded a bit, you know, and that kind of, they, they trusted me in a way, mm -hmm. which is very important. I think that if I had just shown up as a parachute journalist who just wanted to say, hey, I'm going to have three, three, four questions for you and show me as much as you can, never, that piece would have never been uh, what it was. Um, and then you can see how I'm interviewing one person, but the person right next to him is wearing a mask, mm -hmm. for example. So for that person, maybe didn't feel as powerful as this guy, nonchalant, aloof about the consequences, the potential consequences. So, so yeah, I never heard of them getting in any trouble uh, at all. I still, you know, uh, look back, I think, that was in 2015, I think that produced that story for the New York Post. 2017, I remember that I still talked to that driver uh, that connected me with this person, and as far as he knew, he was still up and going, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, well, one thing that was beautiful about it was that it was, it was really non- judgmental it was mm. uh, an objective mm. view of his life mm. and honestly kind of heartbreaking like he sounded resigned to the fact that he knows how that story ends that he's not necessarily going to make it through that world and mm. I think he showed a he, this isn't an old guy and he showed mm. a picture of his daughter I believe right and he was like you know I'm doing this now so that she doesn't have to sort of live the life that I'm living mm -hmm. um, it's, it's it's, it almost sounds like Shakespearean or Hollywood or something, but it's real. And it's, it, yeah. I found that like really touching and heartbreaking. Yeah, no, I, I, he was very open. In, in fact, well, uh, he shows us earlier in the piece how uh, as a kid he loved soccer, mm. but he caught a bullet in his, in his leg and his tibia, went through the tibia, and he was never able to, you know, play soccer like he used to before. So, of course, he might use that as a catalyst for, you know, the world that he lived in and lives now. Um, but, um, but yeah, I just, I just felt like, yeah, I, I try to approach these stories that way, L literally letting people tell me about their lives. Sorry, Barkley. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, sorry. My dog is going wild over here. Uh, so yeah. And I approach stories to this day, mm. uh, whether it's on climate, whether it's on, you know, uh, border conflict, whether it's on trends, I come into these stories you know, uh, absolutely, I, I come as, as fundamentally ignorant uh, in, the term, in, in the sense that I'm not building a narrative. I, I'm going to let the person right in front of the camera tell me their story. And now, you know, of course, it depends on the format, but then the, the audience is there to just kind of take it in. You know, mm. I try to do that. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm completely objective about it. If I was objective, I would try to present a bunch of different points of views and a bunch of facts. I work towards emotional connection, towards the human story. Mm. That's what I care about. Even when we talk about climate change, for example, now I'm working on a bunch of stories on climate, numbers and projections are necessary. But if you don't feel 
something. When you look at these stories, then you're not going to act on it most likely. Yeah. Was there any... Uh, did you feel any degree of fear when you did that story? Yeah. yeah. Well, literally the guy told me, I was, I mean, again, that was about, what, seven years ago, almost eight years ago. Uh, so it was my late 20s. Uh, even the guy I was interviewing, uh, the trafficker told me, uh, I mean, kudos to you. You're brave to be here because I could just pull a gun right now. And I'm like, and we just kept drinking gin or whatever it is that we were drinking. So I guess I didn't have a wife back then. You know, I was I was really interested in the story. Um, so, yeah, maybe I very irresponsibly put myself in a situation where not everybody could have thrived, maybe. But uh, I guess a certain amount of luck mm. and a certain amount of uh, building trust helped me back then. So, yeah. If, so if you're doing a story and it's not for, let's say you don't owe a piece to a network, but you have an idea of something. And mm -hmm. so then, yeah, it's in a freelance format. Mm -hmm. uh, do you come up with the idea, film it, go through everything, and then try to shop it around? Or do you shop around the idea first? That's a really good question and one that I get asked a lot by uh, folks wanting to get into the freelance journalism or storytelling world. And... Um, what I tell them is this, um, to best use the resources, here's what I do. Um, <laughs> what I do is, I, if I've never produced anything before, what I do is come up with um, a good story, one that I'm very passionate about. I film it, I produce it, I edit it, and that is my business card. That's how I started with that 14 minute documentary that no one commissioned for me. I just did that, right? Uh, and I thought I could get this into, you know, short film festivals or whatnot. That is the proof that I know how to tell a story. Mm. Then afterwards, what I do is I do pitch because I have to use my time and resources properly, right? So I do contact a network or I do contact uh, an editor for a network and I say, I have this magnificent story. This is what we could do. And this is the quality of my work. And most usually, uh, this person w is going to reach out to me and say, yeah, of course, let's, let's try it out. Show me what you can do. Sorry. Barkley, enough. <laughs> I'm sorry. My dog is going wild. No, no, no. It's um, okay. So, yeah, that is, that is how I do it. Uh, now I pitch the story. I do my research. I pitch the story, and I wait for a network to, uh, to get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do have a feature film that I'm finishing up. Six years I've been working on it. And for that, I got funding, but no network uh, financed it. It was all independent. So mm. that is, again, the power of really wanting to tell a story, I think, comes through for that. You know, so. There was another video, which I, I guess the industry is technically illicit, but um, of these guys who are selling beer. And there's like oh, right. an unregulated craft beer market, but this is essentially like, mm. I guess, like homebrew <laughs> or on, a, on a large scale that's mm. being... Uh, sold essentially illegally. Mm -hmm. And you went along with a ride along with these guys too. Yeah. And there were many checkpoints mm -hmm. and there mm -hmm. were payouts. Mm -hmm. And there was one point where you're stopped and I think the officer even took took your wallet or your ID and you kind of set up a camera, mm -hmm. probably unbeknownst to him, which was pretty cool. Right. But, you know, knowing what I would have thought and what you said was like, if you're coming from the States or somewhere else, it's probably unlikely that a journalist is going to get in and do a story. Right. What kind of hurdles do you face there? And are, are you know, are the authorities or officials like unwilling to allow you to film? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, absolutely. So look, and I can get into, I'm no, uh, you know, 
uh, ethics expert uh, mm -hmm. at all, but obviously I do have the basic, uh, you know, journalistic ethics as someone working in the industry right now. I will tell you this, every network has a different threshold mm -hmm. of ethics. Uh, that story, I can tell you, as you can find it, uh, I did for Discovery, yeah. uh, the Discovery Channel, uh, their digital um, uh, platform. And they were fine with, with knowing that I was uh, filming with a hidden camera, something that probably the network that I work for right now would not let me do, mm. right? But there is a reason behind it. And the reason is that if I'm literally showing the person that I'm filming, I'm not gonna get that, I'm not gonna get the corruption. I'm not gonna get the right. corruption side of things. Um, and so uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers uh, your question. Uh, obviously, no, uh, it doesn't work. They don't have guarantees or as strict guarantees in Venezuela as you have here. If you're filming a cup over here, then they like they know it's your right to do it. You know, of course they might, you know, I don't know, like react to that. You know, you know, chew you out or whatnot. But over there, you can get in real trouble, mm. right? Again, no guarantees. So yeah. So do you even like? Uh, do you have to identify yourself as press at any point, or if it would be a bad again, idea? And this is the way that I did it when I was a freelancer over there. Um, yeah. To me, the most important thing was to tell a story. That mm. was paramount to me. And I think it was, I was also younger and I didn't want to, I didn't want to think about the protocols of bureaucracy then. Mm. Uh, so no, I think that if I identify myself as a journalist, worse for me. I uh, would think that. Right. And so it's so outrageous, but even in the, in, you know, the word Russia, Ukraine war, uh, you know, there's been journalists who've been shot and wearing a press, you know, uh, helmet and, and vest. So I think uh, it's like, putting a target on you if you do that. And certainly in Venezuela, yeah, that was not a thing. So, yeah. yeah there's, there's two stories you did that um, are kind of popping in my brain now that you say that. The first is one about the green helmets who are oh, yeah. people who are essentially volunteer medics who were going out and helping people who got injured in the protests. Right. Uh, you're right there alongside them. There's like tear gas canisters going off. Right. Uh, I believe at one point you know, they're peacefully marching and, and presenting. And, and I think somebody gets like shot in the leg or something. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that like for you? Because that, mm. uh, you know, seems terrifying to me. Right, right. Um, but look, you, you always have, a, 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 I think I had a healthy or perhaps unhealthy combination of both adrenaline mm. and also um, the need for, you know, telling the story the best way possible. You know, if I want, there were some journalists over there t telling the story domestically, internationally, but if I was embedded with the green helmets, there's no way I was going to be able to tell this story uh, from far away or just with, you know, simple interviews. I, I told myself the way to tell this story is to experience what these folks are experiencing. Hmm. If these young kids, because they were kids to me now, if these young folks were out there putting their lives at risk, to save those who have been hurt during the protests, why wouldn't I be, not be able to be with them? It's the same, you know, the same amount of risk. And there's also inher like an inherent, uh, again, no guarantees, but those people with green helmets were less likely to be shot by the National Guard or by, uh, you know, a passerby than someone holding a bottle or right. a Molotov or, you know, a headband or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, it was scary. Uh, I've, I've, 
I've inhaled a fair amount of uh, tear gas uh, in in my years uh, working over there. Really? Yeah. I um 2014 I covered those protests. In 2017 I went back. I was really living here in New York, but I went back in uh, in 2017 to cover the other protests. That I, I think those were the ones you're referring to. That happened in 2017. Yeah, the green helmets. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they even you know. As you said, they're much more or less likely to be shot. But I think in that video, they talked about somebody who was like 24, who was a green helmet, who had got right. hit by a stray bullet and right. died. Right, right. Unfortunate. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah, because like I say, when you put yourselves and uh, when you put yourself in those situations, you know. Uh, by the way, I don't. I'm not saying that you should ever do any of that. It depends on what you're interested. That's why we have war photographers. You know, they're there to tell the story mm-hmm. and know what the risks are. But yeah, yeah. I mean, anything can happen. Straight bullet can be, or again, the whole press uh, vest or press helmet target on you by, uh, you know, on, you know, on not, you know, kind uh, um, government or an unkind, uh, you know, national guard or someone there. You know, it's it can happen. Anything can happen. Honestly, in those situations. The other story I was thinking of is I think his name was Wooly. Willie, yeah, Willie, really, yeah, Arteaga, mm-hmm. and uh, he initially, if I'm correct, was just playing music, playing his violin at protests, mm-hmm. and he was arrested simply for that. Right. So, so Willie Arteaga was this. At some point, he was a, a symbol of peace mm-hmm. in Venezuela in the in the midst of the 2017 protests. Uh, against the government of Maduro, you'd have plenty of people walking out of the streets, peacefully protesting. You know, they would paint their hands white and raise their hands. And uh, I think some of the more shocking videos that I've seen of, Will- of Willie and I've actually myself filmed with Willie is when you'd have him, a violinist, very you know skinny young guy playing a violin which is very, it's a very contrasty, powerful image because mm. he's walking literally towards the National Guard while they're shooting tear gas at the protesters. So it's a very shocking, sensationalist kind of image, but it goes to show he's not bearing arms. He's just playing music, you know, as a, as a sign of, of peace. And I ended up doing a, I filmed with him in 2017 and two years after filming, uh, like what was happening, I didn't focus on him in 2017. He was just one person that I've met, you know, during the stories that I was filming in 2017, but in 2019, I was walking, you know, through the streets of New York and I saw him in the subway, he was, I saw him playing the violin. And I'm like, no way, what are you doing? I didn't even know that he had moved to the US or whatnot. And I, you know, kind of struck a conversation with him. He didn't remember me because, you know, he didn't acknowledge that I was a journalist filming with him in Venezuela, but, and that ended up being a 20-minute story that NBC News um, released. And it was a 20-minute documentary that did very well on political asylum in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. it tells the story of, you know, how and why he left Venezuela. Because he was imprisoned, yeah, because uh, he was a symbol, right? So what the government or some people think is that what the government did was took this symbol of protest and put him in jail. Uh, to kind of quiet it down, you know. Um, so yeah, we did that story, and it was very powerful because he actually gets to talk in the while we film that that story. He actually gets to talk for the first time in a year with his parents mm. uh, using a smartphone. So they actually saw their faces for the first time in a year, and it's very emotional. It's really moving, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky to have been able to convince the network to let me spend. I think I spent three months on that story, and I was able to 
uh, use and find some of that footage that I had shot in 2017 uh, with him, uh, which, yeah, incidentally, I shot some of that for NBC as well. So there wasn't any conflict when it comes to that. So, yeah. Do you know if he's been granted political asylum? He was ever, ever since he was. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I filmed that doc in 2019. He was finally granted asylum in 2021. So it's beautiful. Took him about a year, year and a half to get it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I really liked about that is that, you know, it it isn't easy living in New York. Uh, Now, if you take a regular day, let's say you go to work and it's as hot as it's been lately Mm. and you get on the subway and it's packed and your face is like stuffed in someone's armpit as you're holding onto the Mm. rail and you're just like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable. I want to get home. I'll speak for myself and say like sometimes someone will get on or actually often nowadays someone will get onto a subway car and they'll ask for money or somebody, yeah, will be performing or dancing or something. Mm. And I, in many times, have been in the place like, oh, just leave me alone. It's been a long day. I want to get home. I don't care about mm. this person. Right. And when you look at a story like that, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody has a story. Everybody has an incredible story. Right. Some people have, have journeyed very far and put their life and their family and everything on hold just to try to, to make it somewhere else. And so it, <laughs> I hope I'm not exaggerating when I say, like, it may be in, in some sense a story like that can at least give people pause in one of those moments and think like, I'll hear this person out or I'll help them out or I'll at least like change my attitude about this situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're talking about perspective, which is incredibly important to have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we, uh, as you know, uh, living and working in, in New York, I mean, the stereotype is that New Yorkers are very like rude or they, the New York minute or we're always going or coming somewhere or whatnot, but Reality is that this is a city made of, yeah, people who, you know, just got here, moved here, people with very diverse and powerful stories and anybody. I mean, it's been my experience uh, as a journalist, uh, so professionally and personally, I love talking to people over here. I mean, mm-hmm. I make friends with the bodega, you know, person, make friends with my barber, make friends, like, there's st- everybody has a story. Mm. Everybody has a story. So, yeah. And so I appreciate you doing, you know, this this podcast probably puts you in touch with people from all walks of life uh, everywhere. And it seems like, yeah, you love also <laughs> talking to different folks. You're not just pigeonholed into one genre. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love it. The, the, the one hard thing is that because I talk to people from so many different cultures, I, I always know very little <laughs> about the topic that I'm talking about. Mm. Unless I would spend, you know, hours and hours researching. But you know, I just do this on the side. So I, I, I'm quite fortunate to get to sit with people like you and, and to learn a lot. Um, it's really enriched my life. Um, maybe closer to the travel world is a video that you did um, about the this gentleman who is making, is it called Kamache? It oh, is a hot sauce that is made with a very long process of sort of like rendering and transforming the yuca into this uh, really like dense, dark looking liquid and then combining that with termites or ants. Yeah, uh, yeah, like giant ants. Yeah. Giant red ants, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, what I thought was really wonderful about that was again, there's sort of just this theme of, of making it, of surviving. And this gentleman is talking about how some of the indigenous folks in that area, that was a source of protein for them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And it was sort of amazing to watch him hand-picking mm-hmm. these termites that are coming out of the ground and sort of like, I guess, like squeezing their torso to get all of the, <laughs> like the guts out of them before they grind them up. Yeah, so that story I did in the uh, Venezuelan Amazon uh, for National Geographic, their uh, digital uh, platform. And yeah, what, what intrigued me about it was this, um, was tradition, like mm. this consistent, consistency and tradition. And the fact that um, perhaps it was a stake, right? Uh, but that, the, the focus was on the process and how much it meant to these people to be able to not only make it because it's tradition, but also export it, sell it. It's mm. part of their economy as well. But the yucca plant, the yucca plantations over there were, uh, were at stake uh, because of either government, you know, lack of government aid or, you know, climate change even. But um, so that is a footnote at the end is like you, you see how much it means to these people. Mm. You see the process. Uh, you even see a tourist tasting, you know, the sauce for the first time, which is very, very interesting. And then at the end, I, I, I leave you with, you know, well, they fear that this will go away or they'll have to reduce or their economy will be affected by all these, you know, factors and whatnot. So, but again, I focus on the people, right? I focus on that connection, what it, what it meant to them and not the, you know, more statistical number part yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah. Did you try it? I try, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not fond of insects of any kind, uh-huh. but I just, I felt like if my producer who was there with me tried it, uh, I had to. I don't know yeah, yeah. if I lost a bet or something. I, I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, oh my gosh, I um, out of respect, I'm not gonna say that I hated it, but it's not my cup of tea, you know. So yeah. <laughs> After I watched that video, <laughs> I hopped on Google and was like, "Can I find this in New York City? Can I find it anywhere in the states?" Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't look like you can. Uh, there, there are places where very specialized art- artisanal places where you can find a version of oh. it made like. Ant, ants, but I don't know if you're in the U.S. You can. I'm not entirely certain. I've, of course, FDA regulations are just much more stringent here yeah. than they would be in you know places like that. You know there. So yeah, <laughs> interesting. Now I'm gonna see if I can look for some of that. Did they give you like? Did they tell you that they wanted that story covered, or that's something that you found? I uh, I actually I found it. So again, uh, once w- when you live and work, you know, as a as a freelancer. In my case, meaning I have no beat there. I'm not like pigeonhole into a specific beat or genre or kind of story. Mm. Yeah, and I, by then I had been working in Venezuela for about six years. Um, you always have points of contact. And I'm trying to remember who I think um, it might have been the producer that I was working with back then uh, just told me about this small town. Oh, no, I know what. Uh, I was friends with uh, some folks who owned a travel agency in Venezuela. Mm. And they were trying to propel a Venezuelan tourism. And they told me about this little town they had, they had visited where they make this sauce. So I remember that I reached out to National Geographic uh, and, uh, and I said, hey, beautiful imagery. Back then, uh, drones were starting to be, like, big. They're not as readily available as... They are. They weren't as readily available as they are today, but that was very attractive because I, I knew a drone operator over there, and I said we're gonna get beautiful, you know, aerial shots and you know very intimate look at the process and the people and the why they're doing it. So yeah, and Angie was very interested in doing that, and mm. they granted me the budget to do it. You know, so yeah. Are there still stories from Venezuela that that you want to tell? 
um, that you haven't yet? Oh my gosh, there's there, I, of that country. I always said that if you looked right, you missed all the stories that just passed you on the left. Mm. Uh, there, there's so much to do over there. I'm sure. I mean, with every, not only. Uh, I mean, look, all the people that are young and and you know and wanting to do things for their country all these grassroots movements to propel tourism to propel climate resiliency in venezuela to in, in a country again that has been marred by you know this bad like awful connotation of you know you don't go to venezuela because it's dangerous um hyperinflated and you know there's social and political turmoil you know so uh, i would love to tell more stories about those folks deciding to stay in a country and like work you know work hard in creative ways to to do this um i want to do more stories on the indigenous communities mm. uh of course i've been always so so absolutely mesmerized by nature in venezuela a country where you can find the largest, uh, you know, uh, body of forests, the tallest waterfalls in the world are over there. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Up, uh, yeah. that's the that they're making a uh, you know reference to the Angel Falls in uh, in Venezuela. You find you know snowy peaks and large you know like dunes, and so there's so much to see over there. So being able to just visit, something I've never done is visit my entire country from coast to coast. A country that you could probably drive through in you know, four days or something like that. Well, the roads are awful, so it'll take you a month. But the distances are very, very short of it. It's not a big country, no. Are you hopeful, like, at this current moment that there's a path towards that, like, you know, uh, sort of travel industry coming mm -hmm. to Venezuela? Or coming back to them as well? Yeah. Um, look, I, yeah, I, I mean, hope. You, you, mm. Yeah, right? If I try to rationalize it, then it would be more difficult for me to tell you when, how, when not. But I'm hopeful. Yeah. Uh, what's happened in the past, and again, I'm no, no economist, but what's happened in the past couple of years is that um, whereas five years ago, you could not, it was illegal for you to purchase things using American currency, like dollars, uh, now in a very informal way, everything's handled with dollar bills. Like dollar is the unofficial currency mm. in Venezuela. And that opened up more business, uh, kind of it's enhancing very informally uh, the economy over there. So what I've heard, because I haven't been to Venezuela in about four years, but is that now you find everything but it just costs a lot of money. It's hyperinflated over there. Mm -hmm. Like uh, literally a can of Diet Coke could cost you $3 or $4, depending on where you buy it, which mm -hmm. is, you know, four times what it costs over here, for example, you know? So, um, yeah. So has everything been fixed? No, not at all. Now you can find food, but maybe you can't afford it, depending on who you are and where you live. But uh, when it comes to tourism, you know, I, I, I hope so. I really want to go visit some of these wonderful places and I want to go with my wife, who's American, and I want to go with my American friends who are my yeah. Central American friends and, you know, be able to just have a road trip in Venezuela. But, you know, it's hard to find someone who won't tell you that it's, you know, too dangerous. Well, look at Colombia, for example. I'm, all, I'm half Colombian as well. So um, when you talked about Colombia in the 80s, you know, it was all about Pablo Escobar, the bombings in downtown Bogota. Like nobody wanted to go there. It was all, you know, 
when you said Colombia was all, oh, cocaine, you know, and cocaine trying. Now there's so much tourism in Colombia, so much tourism. People going to Medellin, Cartagena, Bogota, you know, at the time of this recording, my sister-in-law is in Bogota for business. Um, so it's great. Uh, so that's fantastic. They have a new president who is, you know, quite leftist, not to talk about ideologies or whatnot, but hoping that that won't deter, you know, businesses mm. from there. Who God knows what's going to happen. We'll see in the next few years. But um, I, would, I, I would wish Venezuela would stop being the Colombia of the 80s and move on to, you know, a beautiful paradise kind of, you know, uh, country. So. Yeah, my partner lived in Cartagena, lived and worked in Cartagena for a year. Oh, there you go. Um, and she loved the country. See? Yeah. That's great. It's good to know. <laughs> uh, I, I have, so I have a, a question and maybe a big thought, and you'll see, I, I, you've seen that economy of, of words is, economy of language is not my thing. So I'll try to, I'll try to be a bit concise, but you have a, a recent piece about climate change and its effect on Guatemala. And likely most people have heard that it's often poorer countries that are impacted the most by climate change, um, which seems like, a, like an obvious fact, but I, what I think this video did so well was point out that there are people who are making the really hard decision to leave their home and they're good people and they're hardworking people versus some of the rhetoric that was coming out of our country and other countries um, saying that, oh, it's all criminals that are coming to the border and all this you know, nonsense that we hear. And it shows a family who is like most people and like a lot of poor people who was entirely dependent upon agriculture to feed their families and climate change is making agricultural production uh, diminish. It was showing, I think, like crop failures for, uh, for maize, uh, for corn. And I had the thought watching that, that it, climate change is connected to other things that have happened in that country's history. And again, I don't want to sound like this guy that's just harping on things that have happened or things that America has done in the past, but in 1954, it's out there. It's very well known that the United States, that it was Eisenhower staged a coup in Guatemala and ousted the second democratically elected president, even had a plan to kill him before he escaped. And then there was this like a series of puppet dictators who did really bad things in the country and essentially created a permanent poor lower class. And so I'm trying to even think of what the question is here, but maybe like through your work and the people that you've interviewed and you've talked to and you've seen, have you heard anything about like, obviously the United States is not going to solve and get involved in every issue around the world, but in a place like Guatemala where it seems like climate change is exacerbating an issue that's already there, is there any talk of like, yeah, the United States stepping in and helping to alleviate that fact? Because even some of the more conservative views where people are, are saying like, well, we can't have all, all these immigrants come to our borders and these refugees. Okay, even if that's your mindset, wouldn't fixing the places or assisting the places that they're coming from, wouldn't that solve the issue? I, I don't know. Uh, have you talked to people where like that's sort of the idea? Well, I think that, look, it's very, when it comes to politics, uh, ironically, some, some politics are so subjective. 
Uh, I can't tell you the reason why the U.S. would be or would be doing something or not doing something. But when it comes to Guatemala, the U.S. has uh-huh. uh, pledged uh, millions of dollars to uh, alleviate the effects of, of climate uh, and also focus on um, um, preventing that factors like corruption or the you know economy um, prevent those those things from from pushing migrants over the border, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, let's let's try and fix what's happening in Guatemala, right? Or contribute to to um, what's happening there so that we don't see that influx of, you know, of migration or of migrants into, into the state. So yeah, there is, the short answer is that U.S. has pledged and has invested money. Kamala Harris, I believe in 2021, her first... I believe an international trip was to Guatemala. Ah, um, so, so yeah, yeah, that's those are the, But now, are they doing it because there's some, you know, um, right. guilt and past political actions in Guatemala? Nah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, right? And you did say it. The, the U.S. You know, it's a world power. They can't take care of every single problem out there. But because I believe the conversation is that so many people from Guatemala, Central America, you know, uh, are migrating you know, to, to the U.S., we want to see what's happening, or the U.S. wants to see what's happening in those countries and trying to alleviate whatever might be propelling those migrants to leave their home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had a thought, because often my lens is through travel when I was uh, watching that video. Mm-hmm. And I know people who have, have gone to Guatemala, and it's incredibly beautiful, beautiful. again. Yeah. Um, and there's a book I read just before we went away uh, this past month to Eastern Europe, and now I'm embarrassed to say, I forget the name of it. It's by Jamaica Kincaid. I think mm. it's called, oh, gosh, it's, it's like a very short novel or novella. I think it's called A Small Place. And it's about mm. um, Antigua. Mm. And essentially it's, it's saying, and this was written, you know, decades ago. So even before probably like the building up of all these resorts and things like that. But it's it's written to the reader and like the second person, and it's essentially, there's lines like, you know, you're here for your beautiful vacation and you mm-hmm. don't want it to rain, but you know we've been praying for rain for our crops because we really need those things. Right, right, right. And so a, a story like that I think is also really important because you can see that if you go to a place like Guatemala or even like any of the sort of like resort islands in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't spending their days on jet skis in the water. Like, people, you know, indigenous folks and people who live there and people who've lived there their whole life. Yeah, sometimes that's something people do. But, um, you know, your paradise is also a place where, where people live and often there's a lot of people living in poverty. And so it was in- really interesting for me t- to see that family and, and how they were living versus mm-hmm. the experiences of some of the people I know that have Traveled to that country and um, what's what's the the major island that people go to the, the lake? Um, oh uh, yeah, well it's over in the north. Um, oh my god, with, with the Nango, I think that's a, a region up in north in Guatemala, okay. Chiquimula. I don't know. I, uh, well, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think just can't remember the name. Sort of to your point from before, what your videos are doing is they're giving perspective, and I think that's really powerful and that's really important. Right. Yeah, but it also, I don't think any society, any group of people, any country is monolithic. I mean, mm. obviously, everything has layers to it, you know? You have those who have and those who have not. And in a country like Guatemala, which, you know, yeah, 
there's tourism uh, and they have beautiful, very paradise-like places, which is what you're saying, you do find that, you know, the reality for some of the people living over there is extreme poverty. It's extreme poverty. Poverty that, uh, you know, it's just so very hard to imagine. You know, mm. when you have literally families taking their kids, you know, very malnourished kids to a very makeshift clinic to get weighed, you know, to get weighted to see, you know, if they're meeting the very least standards right, right. of... Of, of, of nutrition there, you know, and the weight that they use is literally something that you would weight fruits, uh, fruit stand over here in the U.S. It's like, it's very precarious, uh, some of those things. But, um, so yeah, there's, there's two sides for every coin is what I'm saying, you know, and what we're trying to do is take care of the other one. And to your point before, whether or not it's the U.S. responsibility to, you know, alleviate these, these factors uh, uh, in other countries, but I do believe that is a responsibility of, you know, heavily industrialized countries when it comes to climate, uh, to care for, you know, these countries who are suffering the most from, you know, the effects of climate change and who are literally statistically contributing the least to, uh, to, cl to emissions, carbon emissions and climate change in, 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 in general. So, mm. yeah, yeah, of course. And that was, I think, part of the narrative on that story that I did on, on Guatemala migration because of climate change. Right? It's what they do. Over, what they do have is our culture over there. It's beautifully green country, but if, you know, torrential rains hit the country, they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the money to be able to rebuild or to work on resiliency programs over there, resilience pro programs over there. So um, that's what we talk about when we uh, talk about um, climate inequality. Mm. You know, so yeah. I'm also interested in storytellers and you mm. are the storyteller. Mm. And I, I had completely forgotten about that aspect of the video where they were out weighing children. And I think they even said something to the effect of like 50% of children are technically malnourished in mm -hmm. Guatemala. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I've mentioned her over and over again, so people are probably sick of it, but uh, Marie Colvin was a war correspondent, someone I, I'd read her book and found her, find her still quite interesting. But she sort of like kept going back to these war zones and I know that's not necessarily what you're doing, but she kept going back until she couldn't go back anymore because she was killed in Syria. Um, but a lot of people who are around a lot of really heavy stuff are driven to like to madness or to drink or mm -hmm. to keep going back like that. Uh, mm -hmm. What sort of impact does seeing a lot of these heavy subjects have on you as the person helping to tell those stories? Yeah, absolutely. I think it affects you in many different ways. I... Not to digress, but that's why I admire, you know, doctors, you know, mm. the health providers in the front lines. I think they see things, you know, you know, that you wouldn't even imagine. When it comes to journalism, because we choose to put ourselves in a situation like that. Uh, look, I'm an extremely anxious person. Mm. Very, very anxious person. So, uh, you know, I do different things to cope with it. I'm very, I love manually working with things. I still shoot on film. I develop mm. my film. Like, you know, things that would calm me down a bit, you know, uh, a nice, you know, cup of, of, of tea. I don't know. Uh, it, you, it can affect you in many different ways. Um, many journalists who have covered conflict suffer from PTSD, um, right? And so in my early 20s and late 20s, I covered conflict a lot. We've talked a little bit about it. Um, it is not that I'm not interested in you know, conflict and what's happening in the world, and especially back home in Venezuela. But now I've grown into 
the interests on other things like climate justice, environmental justice, uh, you know, resilience, you know, what's going to happen to, you know, the world and covering what I believe it's the quintessential, you know, problem facing humanity right now, mm. which is, you know, climate. So um, that's it. So in covering those kind of stories, I'm not putting myself necessarily in the, you know, front lines or in dangerous, you know, areas. But yeah, yeah. Um, back in, I'll mention this as a footnote, even if it sounds a little ridiculous, but back in 2016, I was covering uh, Venezuela and I went with this uh, American journalist. Um, he's written about this. He's an American correspondent. Um, and then we got, we were telling the story of what's happening in government-run hospitals in Venezuela and we got detained. We spent five days in political prison while we were there. Um, he wasn't, he was Amer he's American, so I knew that he was gonna be let go at some point. Um, but uh, I know of Venezuelan journalists who have spent years in prison and I was absolutely, I was, I was scared. So talking about being scared, I'm out in the streets and I'm filming and I've been shot at with rubber bullets or tear gas. Sure, that's, that's scary. Something can happen to me physically, but facing the possibility of having to spend years inside of a political prison in Venezuela, it's maddening. Uh, fortunately, that only took five, five days, but to this day, I mm. still think a little bit about that, you know? Um, and, uh, and it's rough. So, but... Um, but yeah, so it's not like I've been deterred from covering, you know, things like that happened in 2016 and I covered the, the yeah. conflicts in 2017. So I still went back over there. Um, but I think I'm trying to be a little more responsible. I have a wife. I want to have a family. I have a dog who's sitting on you right now. <laughs> uh, and I think I can do a little more, you know, with the experience that I've gathered through all these years in terms of storytelling uh, from where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could see how that would be a useful fear tactic, though, um, to, mm. to try to stop people from telling stories. That's incredible. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll wrap soon because we're almost at an hour, but uh, what, where are you off to after this? Like, what are you working on now? Well, sure. Um, so um, I work for a network uh, that allows me to travel a bit and to mm. tell stories board both domestically and internationally. Um, can't probably really talk about oh, the stories okay. that I'm working over there, but on a personal level, I do have, uh, I do believe that you have to have your, if you're a creative, you have to have ways to outlet your creativity or your expression. Uh, so I have my job, which I love. I get to meet people and tell stories. On a personal level, I do have two projects. One is a book, uh, it's an art book, it's a photo book that I began about 12 years ago. And it's a bit of a, an, an, it can, this can sound a little bit convoluted, but it's an experimental biography. I compiled the texts of this woman who spent a decade writing inside some of the worst prisons in Latin America. And she would write in little notebooks and pieces of napkin, paper, and I did a documentary on her in 2012, uh, on her and two other, you know, uh, former prisoners in Venezuela, and what reinsertion was like in a society like Venezuela. And uh, I was just, out, like, I was mesmerized by her writing. So good. It's so, it's like a diamond in the rough. It's so raw and real, and just the prose was just incredible. So. 12 years, I started, I, I, between 2009 and 2014, I took photographs of where this person lived, around the surroundings in Caracas, where she was born. Um, and then I compiled the text, and I think it was 2018 that after a 
years of hiatus, I resumed the project. I contacted her, her again. She didn't live in Caracas anymore. And we compiled, we saved our whole books, we digitized them, we edited them, we translated them into English, we sequenced photographs in her text and came up with this, what I believe is a beautiful book. I worked with a award-winning designer here in New York who put it together. And now we're, knock on wood, are gonna be very soon uh, you know, launching the book. Now the book was independently put together because it's a very particular art book. Uh, it took a lot of people, a lot of work, a lot of money to put together, but we're gonna have, two, there are 200 of these very unique pieces of, of, of book. Um, and uh, the proceeds or the profits will go towards uh, charities for Venezuelan refugees here in the U.S. Oh, that's so, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so cool. I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. Oh, yeah. If you do like a, you know, release uh, event or showcase, I'd love yeah, to go to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. We'll invite you over. <laughs> cool, cool. All right. I've, I've one more maybe. And of course. You've got some really useful sort of kind of like how-to videos about oh, right. industry stuff. Nowadays... In some ways, it's quite easy to put out content, mm -hmm. uh, which means also that you're just going to get a lot of really bad content because mm -hmm. it, the, you can put things out just using your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of that, too, there's a lot of people who want to make money independently and be a creative and be an artist that mm -hmm. can also <laughs> eat three meals a day. Mm -hmm. It's probably impossible to be like, this is the one thing that would make you successful within this world. Mm -hmm. But... Are there things or traits or um, ways of thinking that you can incorporate into your life that would set you down the path of being successful in the world of creativity and storytelling? That is a very, very difficult question <laughs> yeah. uh, to answer because I also don't like talking in, in very ambiguous terms. I like to be more practical. But consistency is very important. Mm -hmm. Look at you. I mean, you're almost to episode 300, right? I'm not sure if you're monetizing this like, you know, that it's your sole job. But consistency is very important. It's what I did when I started, you know, uh, getting into this industry of storytelling. You know, I've looked for stories and people that interested me. And, you know, and I was able to shoot, produce, edit my own work because for years I had just done that. Now, that taught me how to be a better interviewer, a better storytelling. And that comes with consistency. So very ambiguous uh, kind of thing. A very practical way to go about it is that if you're really into storytelling, uh, then there's many ways uh, online where you can literally connect with industry you know, experts and editors from any major networks. And they'll let you know what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And if you have the portfolio for it, you, you know, they'll, they'll hire you. That's how it happened for me. Mm. Yeah, I don't have any grand advice, but I do think that, especially with social media, sometimes it's just asking. Yeah. Uh, I've been, like, really surprised at even who's responded to, like, my Instagram DMs from time right. to time to be like, hey, would you want to be a part of this right. thing? Right. Um, so at least putting yourself out there and, yeah. That is a really good advice. <laughs> that is a really good advice. You'd be surprised. The worst thing that can happen is someone says no. Yeah. Uh, but you, hey, you reached out to me via email. Mm -hmm. I was happy to have you here at my home and have a conversation. So, and I, I believe that if you're, um, yeah, if you're really honest about 
again, you'd be surprised who will say, yes, I've met some incredible directors uh, from documentaries where I've just reached out to them you know, on LinkedIn or Instagram, mm. and they'll also be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll give you advice on how we finance this entire film that you can find on Netflix today. So I'm like, oh, wow. Awesome. I just asked, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I want to say thank you again. I'm yeah. quite thank fortunate, uh, as always, to get to, to sit with really talented people and to represent Venezuela for the first time. Uh, I have a dream to one day have every country covered on the podcast. So um, I will link to to your site and your social media so everybody can find those stories. Um, you know, I spent the last two days just like going through your website, watching everything, and it's really fascinating stuff. So um, yeah, Good, again, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, Tim. All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 281 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you for tuning in to all the episodes that I put out on the road, and thanks for tuning in to this one. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for downloading. I'm happy to have you all along for the ride. All right, might have a couple more here before I head out to uh, to my road trip, so stay tuned. Give me a follow on Instagram. Subscribe on whatever service you listen to podcasts on. And for now, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon. <laughs>